Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. I'll be reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Galatians 3, 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, eternal Word through the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Father, I feel like a desperate three-year-old begging for Your ability in me to unfold the complexity of this passage of Paul's. So that we'll see the beauty of Your plan in redemptive history. We'll see how important and pertinent it is to our daily life of the fight of faith to walk as justified people in You daily through Your grace, with a heart of trust. So don't leave us just with the Word, but by Your Holy Spirit, cause our hearts to open up and receive it, implanted, to be changed from another degree of glory to glory, through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a complex passage. And I could just read the paragraph like I did. Point to, see, God's promise to Abraham and thus to us. Tell you, He is faithful. Turn to the Bible and show you numbers of examples in people's lives of God's faithfulness give you present day anecdotes and stories which are true of God's faithfulness and then send you home feeling good. But you would have no idea what Paul means and thus what the Holy Spirit means here in this passage. And actually, some of you know me, I mean, a good portion of my biblical and theological education and many books tell me to just do what I just said. Especially on a Sunday morning. Don't bog people down. Especially if it's too complex. But here's where I stand. If, if you're a believer... And in your Christian life, you have come yet to grasp how God is working in you. How He is, since new birth, molding you by causing you to become deeper and deeper in relationship and fellowship with Him through His Word. Through the way He has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture, through your understanding of redemptive history and how it is unfolding, then you're the person who will be gripped by what I'm going to try to do, which is explain the text this morning. And it will bear fruit. 
It might not bear immediate fruit where you're just, I'm so happy as I walk out of here today and feel energized, but it'll bear fruit as it goes deep down under the ground laying concrete as a foundation of your life when things will transpire and you won't know now, but you'll know then how desperate you are to understand this God and His love for you and what Paul means in this passage as you will fight the fight to trust Him on that day. So, as we approach this little paragraph here now of verses 15 to 18 in our journey through the book of Galatians, remember it's not just coming in a vacuum. Remember what we have seen. Paul has argued that the blessing from Abraham, the blessing of justification, of righteousness, of the Holy Spirit, they come through the promise made to Abraham. And just like he got it, through a heart of faith, that's the only way it comes. Through your faith in God's promise, ultimately in Jesus Christ. Not by meriting that inheritance by what you do. Not by doing the law, the commands, in order to get it. And therefore, what Paul has been doing here for the Galatians in light of the false Christian teachers, the Judaizers, is that he says, the idea that they're putting before you that the law of Moses came so that Israel or people, anybody, could go ahead and earn the promise, earn justification, earn fellowship or good relationship with God. That idea is absolutely wrong. That's where he's been. So as we come to this passage, remember, the Judaizers are not just saying a couple words. Add to your faith. Got it. Okay, you believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus too. And God raised Him from the dead. He's the Messiah. But Gentiles, you can't remain non-Jewish. You have to now adhere to, to the law of Moses in order to be justified. Then they, don't, then they walk away. It's not what they do. They open Bible. They're opening the Septuagint, the Greek text, so that all the Gentiles in Galatia can hear, and they're making arguments. And their argument, this is what Paul seems to respond to, goes something like this. Okay, Paul, for, maybe we would, for argument's sake, agree with Paul that the promise and the blessing promised to Abraham, okay, is by faith. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. Okay, alright, Paul, but what Paul fails to tell you 430 years later, God gave the law through Moses. He gave the do's and the don'ts. He gave the Jewish law that separated them of kosher diet and circumcision and festival. And He gave civil law and He gave moral law. He gave them the law. And so, now, faith with Abraham, Moses comes, now you get to work and add that to your faith. And that's all we, the Judaizers, are telling the Galatians to do. You start with faith. Yes! Go on and add works to your faith. And Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit slash faith, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? By this mentality, now I will do works in order for my works to grab hold of and secure salvation. So Paul is responding, it seems, to their argument. In his essence, he is saying, this is why the idea actually of Paul himself before he came to Christ as a Pharisee, and of the Judaizers who come into the church believing in Jesus, held on to that theology, this idea that now the law came so you could earn or merit 
is absolutely wrong. In short, in this passage, Paul's argument is, the law, when it came, was not given in order to teach a different way for Israel to gain the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. That's what he says. If you just jump down a few verses in verse 21, listen to how he says it. Is the law of Moses... Contrary, in contradiction to the promises of God, like He gave Abraham? Answer, certainly not. So, let's go to the passage. In verse 15, Paul starts off by giving this human analogy, this Greco-Roman analogy which was very true in his society. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, does away with it, or, or adds to it once it has been ratified. Signed, sealed, notarized, done. Then in verse 17, he gives the application of the analogy. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the covenant with Abraham was ratified, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. No more. Paul agrees. God gave and made that covenant, that pact with Abraham. And he agrees. God is the one who gave the law to Abraham's descendants through Moses. But Paul is saying, I refuse to allow the unbiblical idea that these two covenants were based on two different conditions. In other words, if that law that God gave through Moses, hundreds of years after the covenant He made with Abraham, the promise received, by faith. If when he gave the law of Moses, God changed the ground rules of how to get his blessing, Paul is saying, well, then indeed, God would have been nullifying the previous covenant with Abraham. But his argument is that's not what the law was about. In Greco-Roman first century society, when men make covenants, legal covenants, they do not go back and change them. Neither does or did God is Paul's argument. The idea of understanding the law of Moses as an employee getting a command from an employer God, okay, I'm going to go earn my paycheck, and therefore, do it, and you owe me, that idea is totally wrong. Had always been wrong. Okay, do you see that yet? Helping? Give me... Okay. Even pretend. It makes me feel better that... Alright, then, then what is this law that he gave 430 years after Abraham with Moses? Okay, one way to say it is this. It is a, it's a spelling out in detail this covenant that he made with Abraham. It is, okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, your twelve sons, the tribes, hundreds of years later, they're not a little family now. They're going to become a new state. They're going to need civil law. It's not an addition. It is, let me spell out this dynamic of, I am God, 
You're the creature. I promise you this. Trust me and you will get it. Oh, let me spell it out. As that people grows to well over a million and He's going to put them in the land that He did promise Abraham. That it at its core is what it is. It's not a nullification or an adding to the basic foundation of the covenant to His descendants, which was always God's promise, which is grace, to be received by a heart of faith. So look at verse 17 again. He's just saying, the law, when it came, is not God coming in, giving the law in such a way that it undoes or changes the foundational principle of the law, I mean, of the covenant with Abraham. Moses doesn't come along and nullify justification by faith. But in both covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, In the Mosaic Covenant, the promise which we have seen through Galatians to Abraham, this promise. The promise is justification. It's it's righteousness imputed to you. It is the Holy Spirit. The promise of the new covenant. It is salvation. It is eternal life. The promise in both covenants comes by a heart of faith. In that grace God promises. Never, ever earned. In both covenants, the Abrahamic, later with his people, he gives Moses in the law. In both covenants, it is foundation upon hearts that are changed by the Spirit in order to receive the promise through hearts of faith. To receive the grace of the inheritance with a heart of faith. Because faith clings to, looks to, trusts God. Trust, therefore, by definition, His words. So much so, that even though faith is prior, boom, it's done. That's it. It's there. This person is connected to me, loves me, sees me. It will evidence itself in obedience. Down here, because this is since Adam and Eve, we're all messed up sinners. Even when new life comes in and we come alive to faith. And therefore that obedience is never perfect. But it's genuine. And it's repentant. And it's there. So even when you look at the law, and during those 40 years, we get examples of it all over. The vast majority of the physical descendants of Abraham did not believe in God. Mean, I don't mean that he exists. They did not have a faith in his grace relationship. They weren't born again. Some were. So God says, There's the land. Take it. Alright, we got a plan. Let's get. One main leader from each of the twelve tribes and go stake out the land. Ten of them said, they're too big. We can't take it. Wait a minute. God said, take it. They did not believe. Two. Joshua and Caleb were born again. They were like Abraham. I know, stars of the heavens are going to give me an inheritance. Abraham believed. Joshua and Caleb says, humanly speaking, this is impossible. But God said, take the land. Let's take it. Joshua's the guy that said, you go Moses, I'm hanging out here at the tent of meeting. Because he loved God. It was a heart of faith. Like Abraham under the law. See, that obedience, let's go, let's take it, is the necessary 
fruit of saving faith. In both covenants, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant. And I make make sure I'm clear, and I taught, what, two months ago, for five straight weeks, on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Okay. We are justified. Sins, and thus God's wrath toward us, removed. Jesus is, in His human nature, His perfect obedience to the law as our representative, His perfect righteousness put to our account. How does we get that? Do we earn it? Do we do something? Well, there is a condition. It's called faith. You heard the Gospel. If you're a Christian, something happened. Some of you can almost pinpoint a day or a time period. Others, it's kind of hard. But you're real. And therefore, at that first moment of faith which new birth produced, you were signed, sealed, delivered unto forever, justified before God, absolutely declared righteous before. By faith alone, before you did a thing, anything. Okay? But, that faith that is real, that got you justified, is of such a nature that it will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Or to bear the fruit of obedience to God. This is called sanctification. From justification, new birth, faith in Christ, on the way to your coffin, there is sanctification for everybody who is being saved. And that is by the exact same faith that got you saved. Not, as the Judaizers are saying, add to your faith something else. This mentality of, I deserve mentality. I will do, look at me, called merit. Let me just, I'm going to show you something for a moment. Because okay. we, you know, well, law, and it's true. Follow me. Do not commit adultery. Love the one true God with all your heart, mind, soul. Don't have any gods before him. Do not cut, we can go on and on. Okay. Do, do, do. And you hear the condition. You may have heard in your Christian journey, lots of people talk about, well, God just loves, and it's undefined, because there is such a thing as unconditional grace. But when we talk about, is justification and final salvation unconditional? Biblically, the answer is absolutely not. No one's saved without faith. There's a condition. Now, what I want to show you for a minute, Abrahamic covenant, unconditional, so many say. Mosaic covenant, conditional. Untrue. For instance, turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18. God says to Abraham, By Myself, I have sworn, this is the covenant, makes an oath, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Look at the next word, if you have the New American. Because you have done these things and have not withheld your son. So stop. Later on, years after Abraham's first initial faith, Isaac is born. He's 17 years old. I think I got that right. Abraham, take Isaac, your son, your only son, up to the mountain, I'm going to tell you, and sacrifice him. And Abraham obeyed. And so God says, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed My voice. Or in Genesis 26, 4-5, He speaks to Abraham's son of the promise, 
Isaac saying, and I will multiply your descendants, Isaac, as the stars of heaven. There's that promise. And I will give you descendants of all these lands and by your descendants all the Gentiles or nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed Me and kept My charge, My commandments, and My statutes, and My laws. That's why He says there. Or one more, Genesis 18-19. For I have chosen Him, Abraham, in order that He may command His children and His household after Him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what He has spoken about him. So the Abrahamic covenant was not unconditional. It's conditioned upon hearts of faith which produce obedience. Because that's the way a person who is trusting in God acts. Now, the Mosaic Law which then comes and is instituted over 400 years later, there were no foundational changes added to it in God's relationship with Abraham's descendants, Israel. Yes, the revelation as as God unfolds in history was fuller He did unfold to them now and give to them something they didn't have. The sacrificial system. The building of the tabernacle. Eventually going to be the temple. He gave them the the priesthood after Aaron and the Levite's job of taking care of all of the tabernacle. He gave them civil Law, because they're going to be in society and you can't have anarchy. And He gave them separating laws because they are His chosen people in the earth. So He makes them very different by giving them laws like don't eat bacon. Circumcise every boy and eighth day is the covenant between me and you. And it's worked really well even up to today. And He gives them throughout eternal, moral law. But it didn't change the foundation of how God relates to His people. I promise it's all grace. You get it through a heart of faith. Never changed. Just for one moment, I'm going to turn to one passage from the law. Now, Deuteronomy 7. I mean, another way to say it is, whether you're Abraham in the few commandments He gave him, or now the people of Israel, He's demanding hearts of faith. The law is a way of saying, this is what trusting in Me looks like. So, Deuteronomy 7, 12-13. And... Because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your... And this is what's stunning about this. This is under the law now. Because you listen, you got ears to hear, and you keep and you do Him. Is that you, Caleb? Yes. But it's not him or her. Is it you, Joshua? Yes. Because you do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant, and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. Meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. 
so faith, a heart of, I trust You. You are trustworthy, O Creator. That heart that says, I look to You for true happiness. Tell me which way to turn and which way not to turn. That's a heart of faith. And that heart of faith is evidenced in the fruit of obedience. That kind of faith was the condition of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. So that later, in Romans 3, verse 31, Paul could say this, and listen carefully, after he's unfolding the core of the mystery that was hidden from past generations. How is this all going to happen? How could David and Abraham be forgiven? And the answer is, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. The reason David could be forgiven is because of Jesus and His propitiatory sacrifice. And so Paul lays all that out saying, it is only ascertained, just like Abraham, by a heart of faith. And then he concludes this. Do we then nullify the law through preaching faith? Answer, may it never be. No! On the contrary, we establish the law. Or, James, in the book of James, chapter 2.14, He'll say this. What use is it, my Christian brethren, if a man says, I have faith, but he has no fruit? James just said the same thing. He just said, he has no works. There's no evidence of obedience to the God he says he trusts in. Can that faith save him? Implied answer, no, because it's not saving faith. So again, You hear the Gospel of Jesus. Or you hear enough Gospel like Abraham. When God speaks to you and says, I'll bless you, it's Gospel. You don't know why He can count you righteous like He did Abraham by His faith. But it will be revealed later down the road through Jesus. By that faith in that heart, which is a miracle by the Spirit, one is justified. It's over. Even before you do acts of obedience. But then... I mean, Paul said it this way in in Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But now, who is that person? Who is that young teenager, middle-aged person who has a heart and loves Jesus, has a heart of faith? Well, they're, they're the person who's been changed. They have been born again. They have been born from above. They are a new Creation. We can use all these New Testament terms. And there's some fruit that is growing out of that. Like Jesus says, if you have no fruit, you're not attached to me, the vine. You're not in, in Christ. Hmm. And so, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, you've got to hear it. God has chosen you who have come to faith in Jesus in Thessalonica. Oh yeah, He chose you before the world began. He has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. You get justified. Got a timeline here. Boom. Next, next, Next phrase. Through sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ by your walking in faith. Through sanctification by faith in the truth. And then when he speaks of final salvation or final glorification that has not happened for any of us, not even Paul yet, the resurrection hasn't happened yet, he speaks this way in Colossians 1.22-23. Colossians, God will... Present you before Him. Excuse me, let me. God will present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He will do that one day. Oh, you won't be sinless down here. 
But one day, He will do that. If. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the Gospel. Why? Because everyone whom God saves, He puts through that sifter of sanctification, which is persevering in faith. To the end, there are no dropouts. They will be glorified. And so the grace of justification before Him, being declared righteous before God, in good standing with God. And final salvation in the resurrection, which is still future and down the road. Whether it's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as we talked about last week, the new covenant. It's conditional. Not merited. Earned. Ever. Fulfilling conditions does not imply earning anything. It could be, but by definition, a condition is not equal to earning. Grace, by definition, cannot be earned. Otherwise, as Paul says in Romans, grace is no longer grace. Grace is a gift. Now, when He gives you a gift, any of us down here sinners, we could reject it. Oh, thank you. And you won't have it. Or you could accept the gift. And thus you have it. Now if you just, just, it's very simple. If that's true, if it's true we're justified by faith, faith is the condition by which a man or a woman, a girl or a boy, is justified. If we're saved by Christ, Christ's work is the condition that needed to happen in order for us to be justified. So for say there's a lawyer, he's doing his pro bono work, which he's going to do some percentage of work for free to clients. And he says to a person who is going to be prosecuted for a crime, you've got to listen to me, Jim. You need to obey everything I tell you. And if you do, here's his promise, I will get you off. And Jim obeys. Jim didn't earn anything from the lawyer. What happened? Like Abraham, he trusted the expertise of the lawyer for his good. And he got him off. It was conditional. Jim needed to obey. I mean, he could have blown his case wide apart. But he obeyed. That was the condition. The promise of grace given to Abraham by faith and then the same God gives the law of Moses to His descendants. It doesn't change the condition of faith. It's always there in order to receive the blessing. Therefore, the interpretation... This is why Jesus was so angry at the Pharisees. To which Paul was one. That's why He was so angry at their approach to religion. Because they totally missed the boat. They used it as a way to compare themselves and think I'm better than others because I do. And that's the opposite of childlike faith in an undeserved grace of the promise of the inheritance. Now, we haven't looked at verse 16, so let's go to verse 16 for a minute. Let me just start with verse 15 first and get the flow. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises 
were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Alright, just for a moment, look. Paul is not a dummy. He knows what he's doing. He knows the Greek word that he's using here, spermati, which translates in the Greek Old Testament the, the idea of seeds. You can hear sperm, ati. They're the seed, offspring. He knows that that word is a collective noun, like the word team. It's like saying, okay, he didn't say teams as many, but he said team. Therefore, it points to just a third baseman on the Dodgers. Shows you I don't know who plays on the Dodgers anymore. But No, team is collective. You've got a bunch of people who are the team. and they all... Paul knows that and he uses this term in Romans a few times. Clearly understanding it means many. Okay, So what's happening? I think, because when you go back to Genesis, for instance, chapter 21, verse 12, where this word offspring of Abraham is used, it's very clear there. Paul sees, ah, Isaac and Ishmael, and then later a whole bunch of other kids. But both of those are offspring of Abraham, but they're not both offspring. Only through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He sees this limiting principle theologically going on in the Genesis Narrative. So that when he comes to Romans chapter 9, this limiting principle, he lays it out, he says this in Romans 9 verse 7, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he sees this limiting principle, and he's already used it, at the beginning of chapter 3? Do you see? No, no. It's not everyone who is a physical descendant of Abraham is a child of Abraham. But only those who are of the faith of Abraham. That's, he saw, no, 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 no. It limited down, limited down. Well, Paul just said, do you want to limit it all the way down? Let's get down to the, the, the whole thing. Ultimately, the most narrowness of this is Jesus the Christ that was promised. And you got to see, as, a, as God spoke to Abraham, said, Abraham, through your seed, it's literal seed or offspring, through your seed, your offspring, I'm going to bless the whole world. Not, not just your seed, but all the Gentiles. I'm really speaking to Jesus, your seed, through you, Jesus, His eternal Son who will become a human being. I'm going to bless the Gentiles, and the Jews. That's His point. And therefore, only by being in, connected to that one singular offspring to whom the promise was ultimately made through you, my son. you got to be in Him to be an inheritor of the promise God gave to Him. Oh, through Abraham, His father. And when you think about it, see, Jesus was the seed in so many ways. He was a Jew. He is a physical descendant. He's also of faith. He lived as a, as a human being in total dependence upon His Father perfectly like no other human being could ever do. You know, be perfect obedience of faith. As Paul may know, those are the ones who are of the seed of Abraham, who are of faith. He's the one who came and bore the curse of the law and so only being united to Him. And that's why Paul concludes in verse 29 of Galatians 3, and if you are in Christ or belong to Christ, the seed, the offspring, then 
you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. See, the point is that the promise of the inheritance made to Abraham and to his offspring, it is fulfilled and it is purchased in Christ, in His atonement. He is the promise. There's no inheritance even for Abraham without him. David's promised an inheritance, but there is no inheritance for David. There's no forgiveness of his horrific sins without his descendant, Jesus. See, that's why Abraham, even before Christ became human, could be forgiven or justified. That's why David, under the law era, could be forgiven. That's what Paul argues in Romans 3. This was to show God's justice because he passed over former sins and he looked unrighteous, but he never was because Christ was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, finally, verse 18. Let's just flow into it from verse 17 though. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. That interpretation is just dead wrong. Paul says, For if, in their interpretation, the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer or it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Who is Jesus? Well, see that in a second. That's his point, right? So, in other words, let me just say first, when he says, if the inheritance comes by law, okay, look, in order to, for me to make sense, okay, Paul, what do you mean by law here? have to have been paying very close attention to the larger context as we've been in in the last numbers of weeks in what Paul is doing. So I just submit to you that by law, what he means is that approach to God's commands, which he calls works of the law in a very negative sense, to, that is, approaching God's commands like the Judaizers are doing, like Paul did as a Pharisee, in contradiction to a heart that receives God's mercy and grace through faith. And that's what they're doing. It is, in other words, the idea of keeping commands outwardly and in the sense that I've earned God's blessing. He says, look, if the promise, if the inheritance given to Abraham came through your doing any laws, then there's no need for Jesus. That's his point. He just made it clear. The promise was made to Christ. And if you think, well, move the promise over here as grace, and I receive it by faith, to my doing works of the law, you have nullified the need for the promise who is Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Good. Christ would not be needed if our law doing that act, did you see that? That secured the promise of eternal life for me. There would be no need. For Christ, the inheritance doesn't come by law-keeping, but it comes by the promised Christ who kept the law on our behalf and He bore our deserved curse of the law and He was resurrected with power so that now He can send the Holy Spirit as human beings preach the Gospel and He blows alive, and they are born again to this saving faith. So his point is, 
when He gave the law through Moses, spelling out what faith looks like in action, He was in no way changing the ground rules of relationship with God. It's the same. It's through faith and dependence of His working for us. He is our treasure. He is our good. Come and drink is the Gospel from the fountains of eternal joy. And faith is at its core that which by a miracle wakes up and says, I see it. There is nothing more beautiful and satisfying than the God who made me and saved me from my deserved wrath through His Son. And He has promised to return one day in order to be marveled at among all who have believed. So, I know as I started off that this text has been, maybe for you, tough sledding to try to grasp the complexity of what Paul's saying, but let me just leave us therefore with the underlying main point of what Paul's doing throughout this whole book and in this chapter. And that is this. First, and it may be true of some in here, small group, Just because you're born in Christian families doesn't make you a Christian. So if you haven't come to drink, if the promise hasn't rung the bell of your heart as the most prized treasure in the field possible, here's the plea of the Gospel. Come. If you will, if you want it, you will have it. It's free. Secondly, if that just happened to you, now you're one. And for us who are believers, the message is, go on and live. Galatians 2.20 I, Paul, a religious Pharisee who had the entire law of God turned upside down on its head and I used it for my own boasting and I was so deceived in all of my covetousness. But Jesus reached out and He grabbed hold of me and changed me. I had eyes to see the beauty of the Gospel and therefore I saw the truth of history that He hung bloody and beaten on a cross That is, the One who is the eternal God who became a human being to do that for me, Paul. I deserved infinitely more than just that temporal pain. He released me from it. So therefore, I have been crucified with Christ. All my boasting and arrogant law-keeping dead on the cross. It is no longer therefore I who live, but Christ who lives in me by the Spirit. Crying the Spirit of Christ in me, Abba, Father, and thus the life I now, I do live, the life I now go on living in sanctification unto my death, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's the Christian life. And Paul makes it so clear as he continues in this letter, the fruit of that is obedience is happening. It's not because you look to a list of laws. He looks to His relationship dynamically by the Spirit to Christ. Thus, the veil is unlifted from His heart as He pays attention to God's 
Word, as 2 Corinthians says, and He is being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So, I mean, remember what Jesus said? If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. He did not say, go keep My commandments in order that you might love Me. If you love Me, that was My sovereign Unconditional grace bringing you to me. Now, this is what will be happening in your life. See, that's the Christian life that we all fight with with our innate sinfulness. It's just there. And if you're a believer, that's why you give in. And, and, and you, I hate that. And then you remember again, who will deliver me from this body of death, of sin nature that's still with me even though I've been made a new creature in Christ. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's right. That's right. So therefore you, how do you walk? You keep foundationally your understanding of the New Testament central doctrine that you were justified by Christ, by grace, through faith alone. And as a justified person, you pay attention to the one you love. And you fight as a justified person to trust in His Word. Let me just give you one example on close. So for instance, one of, besides our sexual natures, besides money, I don't know what are the other greatest constant destroyers of life towards God. So, he says, for instance, in Hebrews 13, this is two people, like us, professing Christians, we come to faith. Here's a, you got to hear it, this is in the form of a command. Do Christians have commands? They're all over the New Testament. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Anyone feel that struggle ever? (laughs) But watch. He doesn't just give you a command and say, Goodbye. It's not how the Bible works. From Genesis to Revelation, it doesn't work that way. He says, Here's my promise. I, Paul, the Hebrew writer says, for he has said, so he goes and he quotes Scripture, I, the Lord, will never leave you, nor forsake you. (sighs) Do you believe him? Sometimes I don't. And thus I see my unbelief. And said, God, help this work in me with fretting or with anxiety. And then the Holy Spirit's how He works in our lives. Through His Word. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So one of the greatest enemies is love. So here's Abraham. He loved God. And you remember he had to go to his nephew Lot messes everything up and he's got to go to war and he does. And then... You see, even before the law, the tithe. And he says, God forbid I hold on to that. And God forbid any man, when they wanted to give him more stuff, no, 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 no. Say that I'm dependent on anybody but God. Here in Hebrews, he gives the command, he gives the promise. It is the promise. And this is true of all the commands. It's the promise that empowers obedience. Because the promise elicits your trust in Him. And that's how Paul sums up in Galatians 5-6. Come, Alex. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, this whole idea of works of the law in order to be made right with it, means nothing. But what means everything, Christian, today, tomorrow, and next week is faith 
which works itself out in loving other people. And then he goes on a few verses later and says, Oh, by the way, you're loving other people? <laughs> that is the fulfilling of the law in you who have been justified by Christ. Oh, let's worship such a glorious Savior. The seed of Abraham to whom we see the Abrahamic covenant was pointing. The law of Moses was pointing. He is the goal of the whole thing. And thus, we find ourselves in Him as you stand and we sing our hearts out.